So what does it mean exactly that we are sinners? Well, sin is that which entered into the world when Adam and Eve rejected their God-given role as image bearers of God. That we were created as humans to image God to the rest of God's creation, to join in creation with worshiping this holy God, and that instead we, re- sought, we rejected God and sought to be God on our own terms. We, we didn't honor God as God, what, what Robert last semester called the de-godding of God, right? God is God, is God and we, we said, God, we're not going to treat you as God. We're going we're to treat you as less than God. And so I think we, think we see throughout Scripture that really the root of sin comes down to this idea of idolatry, or, or is tied into idolatry, this de-godding of God. You see this in the, the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, uh, God says, I am the Lord, uh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. Why no images? As we said last week, God is not a thing in the world. Right? There's no image, there's no, no object, no animal or person or anything we could, we could find that would capture who God is, that would really give us an image of who God is. Uh, God in his transcendence. And so in a lot of older Christian paintings uh, of God, you'll just see like a finger in the clouds or like a hand sticking out of the clouds, right? Because they're like, we can't paint God, right? And I think it's only later you start getting pictures of like old gray-haired men up in the clouds as God, right? But it just, we can't capture an image of who God is. And so in Israelite culture, they're just, there are no images, right? They don't, they don't make images of things because they're so afraid of accidentally de-godding God. Uh, <clears throat> but while this is the case in Israel, that idolatry is uh, this specific case against idolatry, uh, this involves these specific commands from God. I think this principle is the same for all humans. Rather than treating God as the ultimate source of our existence, as the King and Lord of our lives, we live as if, as if we were independent. That we, we, we fashion gods of our own liking that fit our own needs. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So all humans, all people have sinned because they have not honored God as God. Right? We've all de-godded God in various ways. But that idolatry manifests in all kinds of ways. Right? We see this in the Ten Commandments. All the other commandments that come later are, are just expressions of the first one. Right? You're not worshiping God as God, and so you don't honor your father and mother. You don't keep the Sabbath right? Because you don't trust God to provide for you. You're going to work hard and you're going to do it on your own. You know, you, you murder and you steal and all these other things are expressions of idolatry. And we see 
Uh, we see this in Israel, and we see it here in our passage. If you look at following along with me in Daniel chapter 9, <clears throat> we see some of the ways that this sin manifests. But to give you a little context here, so Daniel is an Israelite, and he's in Babylon. We know from verse 1 that this is the year 539 B.C., so some per- pretty precise dating here, the first year of reign of Darius. Uh, Jerusalem was captured by Babylon in 605 B.C. And so Daniel at this time, or Daniel was taken to exile when he's about 15 years old in 605, which means he's about 70 years old now, okay? So he spent most of his life in exile in Babylon. <clears throat> That's been his, his life is experiencing this exile of his people taken away into a foreign land with his homeland just totally wiped out and destroyed. So it says, uh, starting in verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what is this this 70-year exile? Well, this is what he reads in Jeremiah 25. It should be on the screen. Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send you for all the tribes of the north. I will will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, with which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I'll recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So Israel has turned to idolatry, and they've fallen into all kinds of sin. <clears throat> their, their land is, is a mess. Uh, and God is saying he's going to punish them with 70 years of captivity, taking away into Babylon. But then God's actually going to punish Babylon, right? So he's like, Babylon's my servant. I'm going to use them to punish you. But then I'm not going to just excuse the evil they're doing. It's not like the sort of end justifies the means. Well, I'm using them, so it's good. No, what they're doing to you is terrible also. So then I'm going to punish them for taking you into exile. So how does Daniel respond to all this? It says, And I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So his response is confession. Daniel's making confession for an event which happened 56 years before this. An event that happened while he was only a youth. Right? He was probably 15 at the time. And really didn't have a lot of 
role to play in causing all this to come about, right? He's just sort of a, a victim of these circumstances. And yet he's confessing before God the sins of his people. And I think this shows us something really, this really opens up something about the nature of sin that we often don't think about or, or something we really are, are wrestling with. <clears throat> and it's that sin, although sin is personal, right, it's deeply personal, the human heart and the will are directed away from God towards these lesser things, that idolatry is something that's happening in each individual human heart, that, that this produces these shared practices and beliefs, right, as we live together in community. And those practices and beliefs become solidified into traditions and narratives and ways which we understand ourselves, worldviews, which then get enshrined into laws and customs as we take our values and we put them into concrete form in the world around us. And so it gives sin both this corporate and a structural reality that almost exists on its own, apart from the individuals who are a part of it. And so even though we see that sin is deeply personal, it's never private. And it's something that we're wrestling with now, right? A lot of the, the culture wars right now in our country are over whether or not sin is just this private thing or whether sin is just this structural thing. And the Bible doesn't let us make that dichotomy. The Bible says yes. <laughs> yes, it's both, right? It's deeply, deeply personal, and yet it affects every part of our existence as humans. And so in the case of Israel, the idol worship had led to unjust laws, Right? There, were, there were all kinds of laws that the prophets are calling out. You have laws that are unjust, that the poor are being oppressed. And there's a disregard for immigrants and foreigners, which they've been called to take care of those who would come into their midst. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They were, were overworking, and they weren't depending on God and relying on Him. And there's violence of all kinds that's being committed throughout the society. And so every level of Israelite society is affected by sin, and you see over and over again, the prophets are connecting this with idolatry, right? All these practices go back to idolatry. So whether we want to think about this as like corporate guilt or responsibility, either way, the, God seems to hold the whole nation of Israel accountable as a nation for the sins which are taking place in her midst. And so I think this should challenge us as, as individuals in our society as we think about what does it mean to be part of a community, what does it mean to be part of a, a nation and a, and a church which has history? And we think about in our own country, the legacy of slavery and racism, which persists today, the sexual abuse scandals, which are coming to light in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part. How do we think about these in light of our own, our own sin? Do we just see, do we distance ourselves and say, oh, that's just those people over there? Or do we grieve and mourn and say, God, we are a people of unclean lips. So what does it look like to confess our sin? We see Daniel doing this uh, in a few different ways, but I think it's acknowledging our sin and God's righteousness as judge, and then asking both for mercy and forgiveness but also for restoration. And I think we need to take our sin seriously by, by mourning it. All right? It's something that we are not very good as a society at doing, as like being sad. Right? We're, we're like really good at, oh, you need to be happy. You need to be positive, positive energy. Like sometimes you need to be sad. Like the world can be a very, very sad place. And so we don't see Daniel 
making excuses, brushing anything off, right? He's not saying any of this begrudgingly, like, oh, I'm sorry, God, we didn't live up to your law. It's just really hard, right? Or I'm not, God, I'm sorry for what those people did, you know, 80 years ago before I was even born. Yeah, they screwed things up. Now I'm in this bad situation. No, he says, he just says, I'm sorry, God. And he, he doesn't say I'm sorry in a way that I think, at least I often do, I think we often do, is that we, we say I'm sorry because we just want the problem to go away, <laughs> right? Like something comes up, some conflict comes up, and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I said I'm sorry, can we just move on now? Like, right, I, I did the thing I was supposed to do, let's stop talking about this. But then we miss the severity of the sin. We miss the damage that we've caused by our sin. We don't take it seriously. And so we can take our sin seriously by mourning it, right? He puts on sackcloth and ashes, right? He goes into mourning over the sin of his people. And then he asks forgiveness. And I was thinking about this in a lot of our interactions, right? We do the thing where someone says, oh, I'm really sorry. And we say, oh, no big deal. Or that's okay. Or we just sort of brush it off or make light of it. What if we just said, I forgive you? Right? We actually took the sin seriously for what it was. Like, yeah, you, you did do something that hurt me, whether you meant to or not, and I forgive you for it. And you free them of that, of, of that guilt of what they had done, instead of just trying to push it under the rug and, oh, it's not a big deal. No, that, that was wrong. That hurt me, but I forgive you. I think asking for forgiveness is the way we take seriously the, the sin that we've had that whether we've, com- it's, we've committed it or it's been committed against us, is we say, yeah, that, that is sin, and we name it, and then we say, I need forgiveness for that. Or, yes, I, f- I forgive you for that. And so that's what we see Daniel, not making excuses, not making light of it, just, God, forgive us. Forgive your people. And then we see that him taking sin seriously by, by repenting. See, confession should always lead us to restoration, it's not just a, oh, I feel bad, so I'm sorry. It's, it's a shift from, oh, I, yes, this thing was wrong, let's make it right. right? It doesn't ever just stay in that place. And I, I love this. Uh, I've got a quote from a, uh, so actually a pastor that I, theologian I follow on Twitter, but came across this the other day and thought I really captured this. She says, the most radical take on the justice-forgiveness dialectic is to recognize that justice and righteousness are the same root word in Greek and Hebrew. So when we read of righteousness, such as in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we mean that the justice of God makes right, dikaiosune is the word for righteousness, makes right what has been wrong. The justice of God makes right what has been wrong. So it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry, if we then just continue in our sin, Right? You just keep doing it over and over again. Well, are you really sorry then? It reminds me of my favorite Charlie Sarkeesianism, which I wish he was here. Uh, don't be sorry, be better. <laughs> but if we really see our actions as wrong, right, we're not just going to try to get rid of our own guilt. Right? We're going to seek to actually mend the situation and restore the relationship so that we, do th- we stop causing offense in the future. And so we see that, that this confession leads to repentance and restoration as we turn away from our sin and turn toward God and his holiness and righteousness. Now, how does God respond to this? Well, I think we see 
throughout here, throughout this passage in Daniel, that God's forgiveness doesn't depend on our repentance. It actually depends upon God's character, right? Daniel's not saying like, okay, God, I'm doing all the right things. Now can you please forgive us? But over and over again, he appeals to the character and nature of who God is. In verse 9, he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. In verse 15, he says, our Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, right? So he's talking about when God rescued them before they had even done anything for God, right? When God had taken them out of Egypt. Verse 16, according to all your righteous acts. And verse 18, he says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. See, we can't do anything to earn God's forgiveness. We can't even in our own strength actually repent and be better. And so what we appeal to in our confession is not, God, I'm going to try really hard to be a better person. Or God, look how, look how sad I am. Can you forgive me? I'm, I'm being really authentic. No, we appeal to the mercy of God because of who God is. And the fullest expression of that mercy is the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we said in that confession prayer, confessional prayer earlier, that Christ becomes sin in order that we may become the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, it says this, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it is God who actually enables us to come before him to confess our sin and be forgiven and made right with God. It is God who restores us to himself. God not only forgives our failure to be holy, but he then makes us holy. God's declaration of righteousness over us in Christ produces righteousness in us by the Holy Spirit. What does this holiness as a human look like? Well, that's where, again, Jesus Christ is our example as not just the holy God, but the holy human. This is what it looks like to be holy as God is holy, is to imitate Christ. That's how we be holy as humans. And so because of what Christ has done on the cross, because he took our sin onto himself, he took on the curse, right? Just as Israel had failed in their mandate to be the people that God had called them to be and therefore were taken into exile, Christ came and was in exile in a far country for us. He came and came under the curse of sin and its effects, which is death, and took all that onto himself. So that we, uh, so that that would be destroyed in him. So that in the resurrection, we could be made like him, could be set free, could be made holy as he is holy. So the reason we can come and freely confess our sins is because we know that in Christ, we are already forgiven. 
we are already loved. God didn't send Jesus to go fix the problem so, so that he could love us. Right? He sent Jesus because he loved us. He already loved us and sent Christ so that he could reconcile himself, reconcile us to him. Long before we could do anything to deserve that love or that mercy. And so in Christ, God gives himself to the world to suffer and die as human under that curse. But even on the cross, as Jesus is experiencing the worst effects of our sin, your sin and my sin, his response is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God's character is this one of forgiveness. And forgiveness is never contingent on our contrition, but is based on his righteousness and his mercy. We come in this assurance that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so there are several things that I hope this challenges you with. One is, is to mourn your sin, to take seriously your sin by, by mourning it, by grieving it and all of its effects. Do you mourn the sins of our nation? and the sins of the church as if they were your own. Do you mourn that you have failed to be the image bearer of God who reflects Christ into the world? Something we fail to do day after day. And I invite you to, to confess your sins freely before God. But you can do that knowing that those sins are already dealt with and forgiven in Christ. And so when you plea in, on God's mercy, you know that mercy has already been given and poured out in abundance. And so if you're here and, and you're feeling guilty and full of shame and condemnation, maybe because of things, specific things that you've done, or maybe just, you just think, I'm not good enough. I'm just afraid the world's going to find out that I'm not good enough. And you're afraid that God is not going to accept you as you are. Then to you, I hope that you will be comforted to look to Christ and see that God has already accepted you in him. And he has already dealt with all of your sin and its effects. And so just as we've, we've prayed uh, that prayer of confession. And you, we've also prayed that we've already received forgiveness, that God has forgiven us in Christ. And so as you now reflect on that, I want you to reflect on your sin, but reflect on your sin as one who is forgiven. Right? To not come to this table under condemnation, but to come to this table as a child who is adopted, as one who has already been welcomed in. See, we're not worthy to come to this table because we are those who, who were unholy and yet we've been made holy. And so come to the table and remember the Holy One who became sin for us in order to make us that way. And so if you're a Christian, that's the invitation this morning, to come as one who is no, it's not under condemnation, as the one who has been welcomed in because of the Holy One who on the night he was betrayed by one of his own, took the bread and broke it 
and said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took a cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I invite you to, to remain at your seat in this moment. But to know that while you stand as unholy before a holy God, that holy God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And he loves you and longs for you to come home. And so take this time and, and if, if, you're, if you're ready, if you're willing, say, God, I, I am, confess, say, God, I am unholy, and you are. But I want to put my faith and my hope in what Christ has done, and I want to be with you forever. And if you want to, to talk about that or, or pray that uh, with us, uh, myself and some others will be at the back to pray with you as we take communion. We'd love for you to come back and pray with us. Um, but for the rest of you, I invite you just to, to make the two lines in the middle. And you'll receive the bread and take the cup, and you can come back around to your seat and take this time to reflect uh, on the gift that you've been given in Christ. All right, I'm going to pray. I invite the communion servers up. God, you are holy and we are not. As we gaze upon your unsearchable light, God, it, it searches us and, and sees all the dark places, God. Where we have rejected you as our God, as our King. God, we confess that we are not the people you've made us to be. But God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who gave himself up for us. And we ask that you would uh, pour out your forgiveness and mercy on us. God, remind us of the new creation that we are in Christ. So we pray this in the holy and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.